I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Richard Shotton, author of The Choice Factory. Richard started his career as a media planner 18 years ago, working on accounts like Coke and Lexus, before specializing in applied behavioral science to business problems. He's currently the head of behavioral science at Manning Gottlieb OMD in the UK. Today on the show, we take on a few of the biases that you'll find in the book, from negative social proof to the pratfall effect, which is Richard's favorite, and my favorite, the expectancy theory. So I hope you enjoy this show and learn quite a bit about how we actually behave versus how we think we might behave. Hope you enjoy the show with Richard. Well, Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, good to, good to speak to you. Yeah, well, we've got a lot to talk about, but I thought we could start with a simple question. Why did you write The Choice Factory? Ah, uh, okay, so partly, if I'm going to be completely honest, uh, laziness. <laughs> I wrote it last year between January and July. And in the kind of year or so before that, I'd been running lots and lots of experiments for brands, trying to understand how they could apply psychology to their uh, their tactics. And people would come up to me at the agency and say, look, oh, you ran that experiment for Molson Coors or for Toyota. Could you show us the results so we can use it for another brand? And my filing system was so disorganized and my PowerPoints were generally made up just of images that I would 
never be able to find the results. I had to rerun the experiment. So then I thought, well, I know if I write these up as articles, send them to campaign or marketing week, whichever journal, then that way, next time someone comes around and asks me for the results, I can just direct them to a website and you know, send them on their way. And then after I did these, I was writing lots and lots of these articles. And I thought, after a while, well, why don't I kind of turn them into a into a book? Why don't I catalog them all together and you know have 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 something a little bit more um, weighty? And so January last year, I got offered a, a deal from a publisher. And then when I actually came around to, it, I thought, well, look, rather than just be a bit lazy and cut and paste these things, why don't I just start again and pick the twenty five most relevant behavioural biases that I'd come across in the last dozen or so years and write about those. Love it. I love it. Well, we'll get to the book and all of the biases in a moment, but I thought let's take a minute to find out a little bit more about you. What's your background? Where'd you grow up? We can obviously hear the accent, but where'd you grow up? And Yeah, so I uh, grew up in England. People might or might not know it, but a place called Essex, which is about 50 miles from London. Uh, and then my background, I mean, I, yeah. I had no real interest. I, would, I never knew anything about psychology until I got into the advertising industry. Mm. I was always interested, I think, in why people did the things they do. So whether that was studying history or sociology or geography or art, I was always fascinated by people's motivations. And I think that's what essentially led me into wanting to go into advertising. Mm. Because, you know, one of the important things people do is buy commercial products. And I think that's just a, a way of understanding you know, what makes them tick. Mm. Where'd you start your career and what were the you know, moments along the path to get you where you are? So I started my career back in 2000 in uh, an agency called BBJ, which was part of uh, uh, Denso Aegis, and so as a media planner. And I think the, the big thing that changed along the way was about four years later, and actually by that stage I'd moved to an agency called Zenith. And I can remember the very, very, very specific moment when I first started getting excited about psychology and understanding that it could have a big role for advertisers. And unlike most things in life that you just gradually drift into, there was a very specific moment I first realised how important this topic could be. And it was stuck in a cab on the way back from what frankly been a car crash client meeting. It got mingling awfully. We'd been working with the British government and trying to get people to encourage people to give blood. And the expectation in the UK is that you give blood for no money, just out of altruism. And the meeting had gone awfully because we were miles off our target. But then I was on the way back to the office. Luckily, I read about the story of... Kitty Genovese. So have you heard about this, this story of Genovese? No, no, I don't think so. So it's a fascinating story. So back in 1964, Kitty Genovese was a, a bar worker in New York and she closes up her bar early hours, 13th of March, 1964, and drives back to her house in New York, uh, Kew Gardens, I think. And she parks 100 yards from her house. Unfortunately, she's walking to the front door. She is spotted by a man called Winston Mosley who's turns out late to be a serial killer. And Mosley stalks her, stabs her, and over about a period of about 15 minutes, murders her. Mm. Now, a couple of days later, this is front page news on the New York Times. And whilst that doesn't sound that surprising, you know, it's a pretty brutal attack. In mm. that year alone in New York, you know, it's a pretty violent place. There were 636 other murders. Mm. It was rare for a murder to get onto the, the front page. You know, Kitty Genovese was one of the few occasions it did. And the reason it got onto the front page was that supposedly, and I do stress supposedly, supposedly 37 people witnessed this attack and did nothing to intervene. So they didn't call the police, they didn't go down and intervene. Now, the Times, they explain this by saying, you know, this is just symptomatic of the, the city going to the dogs. But two psychologists think the Times have got this the wrong way around, that they think that it wasn't that no one helped 
despite there being so many witnesses. It was the no one helped because there were so many witnesses that there was a diffusion of responsibility amongst the crowd. Hmm. So they then spent the next, and this is Latine and Dala, the two psychologists, they then spent the next two years trying to test this hypothesis. So rather than just argue it from logic alone, they set up a load of experiments to challenge their point. And all the experiments had pretty much the same approach. They would stage an emergency. So for example, one of their colleagues would have a, a, tend to have an epileptic fit, and then they would monitor whether people try to help. And they set up these emergencies in one of two ways. Either it was witnessed by lots of people or just one person. And they found that people were up to twice as likely to come to another person's aid if they were on their own. And the psychologist called this the bystander effect, essentially the idea that if you make an appeal for help, the more people you ask, the less likely anyone individually is to come to your aid. Now, when I read about this in 2004, it was like, bloody hell, this is exactly the problem we're facing on the blood service. You know, we're going out and asking everyone to donate, and just as these psychologists suggest, most people are ignoring us. So having read about the bias, I went and spoke to the creative agency, DLKW, which then became Mullen Lowe, and a wonderful strategist down there called Charlie Snow, and said to them, look, why don't we just use this bias? Why don't we stop going out and saying blood stocks are low in England, please donate? Why don't we adapt it to specific towns and regions? Blood stocks are low in London, please donate. Blood stocks are low in Birmingham, please donate. And then when we got the, so you know, very, very simple tweak, but then when we got the cost per response data back, there had been a uh, 15% improvement when the creative had been tweaked in this way. So that, to me, was a, a revelation that psychology, academic work, stuff that I'd been ignoring for the four years that I'd been in the industry, could have a very practical effect on campaigns. You know, that it wasn't just abstract and academic, it solved some of the problems we were facing. So I think that campaign was the pivotal moment in my career when I suddenly became interested in this field. You know, I've spent the last 14 years immersing myself in it and trying to run experiments to show that many of these biases that stretch back 50, 60, 100 years still work today. I like that. That's a fascinating mm. story too. Mm. Well, so I mean, then completely lucky, you know, if I hadn't maybe been lucky enough to work on government campaigns or lucky enough to work with a, uh, such an open creative agency, maybe you know, I've never have come across this stuff. Right. Well, and you mentioned Zenith as well, and this is kind of an aside, but did you overlap with uh, Tom Goodwin? I did, but by about, probably about three weeks. Okay. So I think Tom had moved from Havas to Zenith yeah, US right. when I was in Zenith UK. And we did a couple of conference calls because I know he's interested in this area just to talk about some of the work that UK right. was doing. It's just an interesting coincidence. I, it was just mm. the two together and he's been on the show recently. So I, I was like, hmm, I wonder if they know it. Do you know what? It might not be a complete coincidence. I think I might have seen your show ah. when Tom <laughs> tweeted about it. So yeah, it might be more of a, it's a yeah, small world. Yeah. yeah, it is a small world. So, well, well, let's get into the book. You lay out 25 behavioral biases you know, most influential in advertising and marketing. You talked about the process of going back in your notes and studies that you've run before, but how did you select the 25? I would imagine there's a lot to choose from. Oh, yes, yes. It's quite hard to get a specific number of how many biases there are. Right. It's roughly 200. You know, go to, go to Wikipedia, and this is hardly the most academic source, the most robust source, but they list out 192 different biases and insights that psychologists have come up with. And I doubt that's fully authoritative. So you're right, there's a phenomenal range. Right. What I wanted to do was try and pick what I thought were the 25 most relevant ones to advertising, because I was slightly frustrated that you know, lots and lots of 
popular psychology books on this topic, but the vast majority just describe the biases and don't really then say what you should do next. There are a couple of others. I think, you know, Decoded by Phil Barden looks to explain how you apply the bias to advertising as well. But I was really keen that rather than focus on the academic experiments, you know, that's a part of it, but that only makes up about a quarter of the chapter. Right. So each chapter is based around one bias. There'll be a short part about here's the academic evidence that shows this is a robust finding about the human mind. Then there's a bigger section on, look, here are specific research that I've done that shows it's, it works in the commercial world. And then probably the final half is, now you know this bias, what should you do differently? How can you treat your creative? How can you treat your pricing? How can you treat your targeting? How can you treat your media selection? Yeah. Uh, I've really wanted it to be practical. Well, and as I was reading the book, I, I totally agree with that. And it is really applied science, if you will, mm. which you don't find very often. It's one of those books where I think it'll stay on the shelf. You know, it's one that you'd want to pull back out from time to time with the next challenge. Which is strange in a way, because there's a wonderful, and I might butcher the line slightly, but I think it was Amos Tversky rather than Daniel Kahneman's uh, partner, two people at the forefront of behavioral science. And he said, all I've done is catalogue what is known by used car salesmen and advertisers. And what I think is interesting is the academics see advertisers and uh, salesmen as using this. But I think what happens often in industry is people draw on this or have been for a long time drawing on some of these insights implicitly. A great creative director and he's a great observer of human nature and he'll have worked out these insights without any knowledge of perhaps behavioral science or social psychology. The great thing now, I think, is if, if we're getting more and more people cataloging the findings and, and showing the applications, it makes it easier for all of us then to use it in that practical way. Like it. Do you have a, uh, this sounds like an odd question, but do you have a favorite bias? <laughs> I definitely do. I do. My favorite bias is one called the pratfall effect. Mm. So it's one discovered by the professor of psychology at Harvard University, Elliot Aronson. And it's the idea that people or products who exhibit a flaw become more appealing. In Aronson's classic experiment back in 1966, he recruited one of his colleagues, got that colleague to take part in a quiz, recorded the colleague doing so, and Aronson had slipped in the answers beforehand. So his colleague does amazingly well, gets 92% of the answers right, and wins the quiz by a mile. But as he is standing up at the end of the quiz, he makes a pratfall. He makes a small blunder. He stands up and spills a cup of coffee down himself. Aronson then takes that recording, plays it to people, and he plays it in one of two ways. Either they hear the entire incident or just the great quiz performance. And then when Aronson questions them about how appealing this man is, people find the man significantly more appealing if they've heard the mistake as well. So he calls this, yeah, the pratfall effect, this idea that if you exhibit a flaw, you become more appealing. (laughs) And I think I love it for two reasons. Firstly, if you look at some of the greatest ad campaigns through history. VW, Beetle, Ugly is Only Skin Deep, Marmite, Love It or Hate It, Stella, Reassure and Expensive, Guinness, Good Things Come to Those Who Wait. It is a tactic that has been used to great effect in advertising. And I think those advertisers have realized a few things. Like firstly, that people are generally pretty distrusting of advertisers. So therefore, one of the key tasks is to win over their belief and trust. And the best, single best way to do that is to admit a flaw, show, give a tangible demonstration of honesty, and then your other claims become more believable. <laughs> I think also, those advertisers have realized that often there is a mirror strength to a weakness. So if you 
you know, VW, you go out and say, you know, we're ugly, we don't care about aesthetic fripperies. That's because we are focused on engineering excellence. It makes that central claim that much more believable. Right. And then I think from a practical, personal perspective, I love the pratfall effect because it, if you ever present about it, it basically gives you a complete get out of free card <laughs> that you can trip over the stage or you can spill your coffee down yourself or whatever. And you can kind of pretend that it was all the pratfall effect that you were just trying to become a bit more appealing by showing a, showing a weakness. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> Love it. Well, um, let's take a couple more if you don't mind. One of the ones that stuck out to me, but the fundamental attribution error, which I think is your very first one, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I think you're right. Because, um, so don't want to be too contradictory, I think one of the reasons I love behavioral science is that it's not a single big theory that you have to apply to everything. Mm -hmm. It's not some grand idea. It's lots, it's a collection of lots and lots of different insights. And I find that wonderfully practical. That anyone who works for a brand or works for an agency will know that the problems you face from one day to the next or from one brand to another are markedly different. So if you buy into a single theory of how advertising works, what happens is you force fit the problem that you've got at the moment to the tool you have at hand. I think that leads you the wrong way. Right. Uh, behavioral science is far better because it's this messy, eclectic mix of biases. But that said, the reason I started with the fundamental attribution error is there are probably two broadish principles to behavioral science. Mm. The first is be careful about listening to what people say motivates them because people are very good at giving you plausible post-rationalizations about why they did the thing they did. The problem is they might be plausible, they're just not often representative of the truth. Mm. And the second big thing is this fundamental attribution error, which essentially is the idea that we overestimate the importance of personality or character and we underestimate the importance of context. So the classic experiment, so uh, uh, Darling Batson, 1973, they recruited 40 student priests, people were training you know, in theology, and they told them that they had to walk five minutes from where they were to church to go and give a, not a speech, or a sermon, that's the one, sermon. But the real test was what happened between where they were and the, and the church. They had got one of their colleagues to pretend to be feeling ill and then monitored what proportion of the priests went and helped. So they were all off on their own. And the twist in the experiment was that when the priests were leaving Dali and Batson to go to do the sermon, 
half were told or a third were told, you know, you're in a, you're in a rush or oh, gosh, you're running late. Make sure you get there quickly. They're expecting you. They were expecting you five minutes ago. The next third were told they've got some time. And the final third were told they've got loads of time, you know, going to be 10 minutes early. And then the two psychologists measured to see, you know, who out of those groups would help. And what happened is that when people were in a rush, only 10% helped. When they had plenty of time, 63% helped. So wow. that contextual thing of being in a rush or having lots of time was far more important than any personality metric. And when Darlene Batson cut the data to look at whether people had, were going in to become priests for you know, the glory of God or, or to help other people, you know, the reason had no difference. It didn't matter whether people claimed they were interested in helping others. What mattered was the context they were in. <laughs> Yet when people are asked to predict what would happen, they think that the personality import would be far more important than it actually is, and the context much less important. Now, I think this is absolutely fascinating you know, for, for advertisers because what it means is that our obsession with target audiences might be slightly flawed. I'm not saying they're, right. not, they're irrelevant, but we should be putting as much emphasis, as much time, as much effort in identifying what is the ideal target context that your message is going to work best in. And I don't think we're doing that yet. No, and I, well, I, just to build on that, I think in the world of where experience is branded or unbranded are becoming more of a focus, the context matters, right? Big time. Absolutely. Absolutely. It could be the mood someone's in, you know, here's, here's the rush, whether they're distracted or not. All these things have a huge impact on our behavior. But because as an industry, we rely on people's claims, that fleeting contextual moment is often underestimated because who wants to admit that they are at the whim of external forces people want to claim that they have a consistent personality and no one wants to say well i didn't help someone who was in need because i was in a bit of a rush that doesn't reflect well on us and there is a strong bias in surveys that it's called social desirability bias that we project an image of who we want to be rather than who we actually are hmm. let's take another one i've got two more on my list but i loved well, love that it was the wrong word, but <laughs> yeah. I, I was intrigued by the negative social Ooh, proof. Yes. And the reason is, you know, in the B2B software space in particular, you know, ad tech or anything, you know, social proof is used on every single website of those people. We do business with this company, this company, this company, this company. And so then to think about the inverse almost of that was intriguing to me. Okay. <laughs> Well, I think, okay, there's, there's two interesting there's, there's an interesting bit, as you say, social proof is used regularly. Yeah. But I don't think it's used to its full extent. Great. So what I think most advertisers do, especially maybe the long tail of advertisers, is this very literal version of social proof. You know, we sell 10 million widgets a year, or we are the number one in our market. And that's all very good. There's lots of evidence that people are finding whoever is the market leader appealing, you know, we, we like to do what others are doing. So there's a lot of evidence to that. But I don't think it's the best use. I think the best use of social proof comes from a more lateral interpretation. And I think the best example of that is probably iPod, who created an aura of popularity when they launched, which wasn't actually the case. Now, back in 2001, so it was 2001 they launched in the, in the UK, I don't know if it was a little bit earlier in the US. In 2001 they launched, they weren't the market leader. There were lots of other MP3 players out there. But no one knew the size of other brands in the market because the player, the MP3 player, was invisible, essentially. It was stuck in someone's pocket, and every one of the competitors used bland black earphones. So you didn't know who was bigger, Motorola or Sony. 
But as soon as Apple launched, they make a massive thing of their uh, distinctive white earbuds. That represented Apple. Everyone knew that meant Apple. So as soon as you start seeing a couple of people with the white earbuds on the underground or in the street, Apple felt like it was the market leader long before it was. And I think it's that that use of social proof that's really exciting and has the the really big effects. And that, that then leads to something interesting, which is this cataloging of interesting cyclical insights and biases in no way circumvents the creative function. You know, the best use of them is just to see them as a, a springboard for a brilliant creative mind, you know, great creative director to take them as leaping points to then use and uh, harness. So sorry, that was the first bit. I think there's a, yeah, there's a wonderful opportunity around social proof. Yeah. But yeah, as you say, the negative social proof is fascinating as well. And this is essentially the idea that if you make an antisocial behavior seem commonplace, it becomes more common still. And the classic experiment was done by Robert Cialdini, so professor of psychology at Arizona State University. And he worked at Arizona's Petrified Forest National Park, where they had a problem of people were stealing the bits of petrified wood. So he worked for the park rangers and he sets up CCTV cameras, security cameras, to look at a little section of the path to see who's stealing stuff. And he sprinkles bits of petrified wood on the path. And when he leaves no message at all, 2.9% of people steal a bit of wood. He then has a message which says essentially along the lines of don't steal and theft rates drop to 1.7%, so effective campaign. And then he has this negative social proof message, which essentially showing that theft is commonplace. He says 14 tons of wood have been stolen a year. It's ruining our park. Don't. And in that scenario, theft rates jump to 7.9%. So that's not more than double. So in Cialdini's word, this was a crime promotion strategy, not crime prevention strategy. That by going out and saying how often wood was being stolen, it removed a sense of transgression. It probably made people feel like it can't be that bad. And if I don't nick some now, I don't steal some now, I might not ever have a chance again. And Hmm. it's a fascinating area because it is not just a mistake that happens on a a national park. It's one that regularly happens in uh, certainly government advertising, a lot of time charity advertising. The government or charity often will go out and tell people how big a problem is. You know, loads of people are carrying guns or knives or lots of people are getting drunk and or lots of people aren't bothering to turn up their doctor's appointment. And all the evidence from Cialdini is that that will make the problem even worse. Mm-hmm. That's uh, crazy. If you think too hard about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy that a well-known... And the, you know, the craziest thing, at the very end, I think, of um, Cialdini's original paper, he says the actual national park, the, the, the park where he does his classic experiment, they ignored him. You know, they said, oh, well, we thought your finding was interesting, but we went out and surveyed people. And those people told us that, you know, the message saying don't do it wouldn't be effective and the message about 14 tons would be effective. So again, we see this problem of behavioural science is not used enough because of problematic research techniques, too much reliance on what people say and not enough interpretation of that, those claims. Like it. I think I do have a favorite out of the 25. And I think my favorite is the expectancy theory because of the, the sheer, it's almost like the context that we were talking about earlier and applied differently. But it, why don't you explain it to listeners just so I don't butcher it? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it is essentially the idea that when we when we experience something, it's not just that you know that's a beer, a perfume, or a wine. It's not just the physical entity, you know, the chemical constituents of that that drink or perfume that define how much we like it. It's actually our expectations as well. So if we expect something 
to be nice tasting or nice smelling, it ends up more likely it will be. And then what becomes interesting is our expectation of a product can be shaped predictably by how we describe it, the price of that product, how it's served. All these things can change the enjoyment of the product. So one of the classic experiments that slightly controversial figure now, unfortunately, some of the controversy came out after the book, was um, some experiments done by Brian Wansink. So he, he's a professor at Cornell University. He bakes up a batch of brownies, serves them to uh, people in the cafeteria, and he either serves them on a napkin, a paper plate, or a china plate. It's exactly the same brownie, but people prefer the taste when it's served in a fancy manner, and they're prepared to pay more for it when it's served more beautifully. And yeah. that same finding is found for price. You know, if, we, if people are told a wine is expensive, it'll taste better. It's found for the description of foods. One of the most famous studies by, oh gosh, I think it was Levin. I'm not 100% sure on that. But they essentially looked at, they, they, they served up some minced beef and some people were told, and this is more example of framing really, it was 75% fat-free, some tw- it was 25% fat. You know, so the word fat is emphasised, that 25% fat, people are more likely to rate it as kind of greasy. Whereas when mm. the fat-free element is emphasised, 75% fat, they're less likely to think that they're going to rate it higher. So same product described differently will have a different impact. Hmm. I mean, it's fascinating because I, I, I'm probably, I think it's the one that I feel I'm probably most susceptible to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As a, just a human being and wandering around, you know, my town going, oh, am I infatuated with the description or the food itself yeah you know <laughs> well, i think this actually this was one of the very first experiments we did and if people read the book they might notice that a lot of experiments revolve around beer and wine because i essentially thought yeah. well, i'm gonna do these experiments and might as well make them fun for me <laughs> and one of these experiments we were pitching for a, a wine company and i bought loads of i mean a ridiculous amount of wine over the weekend and then spent the evening pouring wine out out of one bottle and refilling it with another so <laughs> it's, you know i don't want to say the name because it's a bit rude but there was, it was a mass market wine brand with a bit of a bad image right and we'd serve people the mass market wine out of a really fancy bottle of wine and they'd tell us people would tell us oh you know this stuff's amazing it's really velvety i'd score it 10 out of 10 <laughs> and you know if we served it in its own bottle they'd tell us that it tastes of oh it's rough on my mouth i score it two out of ten and i can remember this was the first one i'd ever done this that i thought good lord these people are gonna you know, they're gonna beat me up at the end of this experiment when i have to tell them you know they've, they've been sitting around in a focus group not to, yeah not to mention they're drunk now yeah yeah, yeah 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 i've now got a drunk group of people who i've humiliated in front of their uh, friends and colleagues I, I, I thought that was gonna end very badly luckily uh and i don't think these people were lying you know the look on their face will never you know i always remember that they were kind of slightly flabbergasted they, i think they you know, generally couldn't believe they didn't believe it at first i think you said pivotal moments earlier and i think yeah. that was a bit of a pivotal moment as well that you know people see, see through lots and lots of experiments run through the book and one of the eye-opening moments was realizing that research did not have to mean ten thousand dollars worth ten thousand pounds worth of budget and six weeks of work that you could do a far more fast and frugal approach of a quicker faster experiment you know over a day or two running some of these real life tests and to realize that i didn't have to wait for other people to do these things that i could do them myself with colleagues was eye-opening well is there there may be many of these but is there is there a most shocking thing that you've learned by either writing this book or you know just the general nature of studying consumer behavior i think one of them was um 
a just because I just really didn't believe it at first. But I loved the way that the academic proved it, and it's an idea that sounds utterly rubbish to me. It's the idea of, of, by Adam Alter of nine enders. And it's the idea that we are much more likely to make big lifestyle decisions or big life decisions when our age ends in nine. So when we're 29, 39 or 49. So Alter calls these nine enders, these people. And at first, it sounds a bit like Hokum, you know, proves it with some survey research, you know, asks huge volume of people how likely they are to have made big decisions over the last 12 months and people who, whose age ends in nine are significantly more likely to have made those decisions. But, you know, having discussed what we have, slight skepticism about that claim data. But then, and this is, I think, the mark of a really good psychologist, is they think of lots of different ways to use found or observed data to prove their point. And what Alter does is look at things like Athlinks, athletics website where people do marathons and things. And he finds that first-time marathon runners are 48% more likely to be nine-enders. He looks at Ashley Madison data, so the affair website, and finds that <laughs> men having affairs are, I think, 18% more likely to be nine-enders. He even looks at US suicide data and finds a small but statistically significant uplift amongst nine-enders, and then they're likely to commit suicide. Now, wow. that I, I found uh, fascinating. I think one for you know, just not necessarily believing it at first, but the phenomenal level of evidence all to goes to is, is very impressive. And then the other bit which I love about it is you know, talk about the practical nature of these findings, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that's for an above the line agency or a marketer, that's an interesting finding, but what do you do with it? But now it's so easy to target people by their age. You know, Facebook have people's birthday, lots of other places do, lots of CRM will. So if you are selling you know, sports cars or long haul holidays or diet stuff, what a great place to target. And because your competitors are not necessarily reaching their group, they're probably following far more uh, traditional approaches, ABC1 men, ABC1 women, 25 to 34s. If you target differently, you're far more likely to be successful because you're not competing with lots of other people. So yeah, that, I think that nine enders is one of my, uh, one of the most shocking, shocking things I think I, I read about. That's fascinating. Switching gears a little bit, we on the show always like to get to know the individual a little deeper. And we've talked about your background already, but one of the things I like asking is this question, you know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I th- think um, the part around, maybe, you know, going back to those experiments, I think what I have most loved is the freedom to go out and run a test to prove a point, not to have to rely on other people's findings. You know, it is so easy to set up a, a psychology experiment. You need 50 pounds worth of scratch cards, go out to the street, stop people, and then set up an experiment. And so quickly you can find out an answer. And I find that really exciting and liberating, you know, starting the project, not knowing if it's going to work or not, and then generally finding an interesting insight at the end that you can apply. I think that that's what I find most exciting about the job. Well, you know, what drives you, what keeps you going, what fuels you? Well, at the moment, I think twofold. I mean, one, I love discovering these various different insights into how people tick. I think people are an endlessly fascinating and surprising group. And then the second part that I'm really enjoying at the moment is after about 20 years of always working for an agency, I've gone part-time and I've set up my own company on the side now uh, two days a week and that's I think giving me a fresh lease of life it's a very exciting thing to do to set up your own business it's a bit of a gamble but I'm, I'm finding it very enjoyable at the moment that's awesome are you are there brands companies or causes you think other people should take notice of 
So rather than necessarily up brands or causes, the there are, I think there are lots of people that I find fascinating to yeah, follow sure. on Twitter. Yeah, okay. So um, Rory Sutherland is phenomenal stuff he writes, like the Wiki Man or his Spectator column or his Twitter feed. He is a wonderful example of a phenomenally creative mind who takes a lot of these biases that other people are, or lots of us are aware of, but he uses it to jump off in completely different directions. So if people haven't heard of him, or uh, the best place to start probably is his TED Talk life lessons of an ad man. And then other areas, there's a wonderful, wonderful book called Irrationality by Stuart Sutherland, in which he covers hundreds of psychology experiments. Uh, he doesn't apply them to advertising, but I think that's a, um, a brilliant source of insights from psychology. And then there's the other bit I love is the following kind of most interesting creative directors, people like Dave Trott, Dave Dye, or academics like uh, Susan Pope and Ad Teachings. You know, Seeing the, the the you know the kind of greatest creative minds in in action, it, it, I always find very inspiring. That's awesome. Well, last question for you: Where do you see the future of marketing going? Okay, so I uh, this is I, I would say this is a bit of a, a bugbear of mine. I think marketers massively overestimate how much people genuinely change, and we get very very obsessed about the latest new thing, whether it's blockchain, AI, or, or whatever. And I would certainly subscribe, I think, to the, the kind of Bill Burnback point of view, and not get his quote quite right but along the lines of it's taken millions of years for man's nature to evolve it'll take millions to vary it's fashionable to talk about the changing man but as communicators we should be concerned with the unchanging man and that i think is essentially the future the future will be very similar to the past you know it might not be what marketers obsess about and talk about but humans in 20 30 years will have the same desires and needs as, as, as they've always had well richard thank you so much for coming on the show mm, well really nice to talk to you Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.